What's the temperature like? I don't know, but I'm truly not for UK. No, it's sunny, it's sunny. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so thank you. I think first of all, for, thank you so much for 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 joining us today. Um, we, I, I I read your book, and for me, it was just it moved me in so many ways. Like I can't, the characters have remained in my head, and I find myself wondering, Uti, oh, if if things had been maybe a, a bit different for so and so, how, um, you know, if if maybe a stroke of luck or some or something. How, would, how it would have been like a different outcome, you know? And I, I find myself just constantly just replaying scenes in my head, replaying um, the characters. And you, you write so in such a way that a person, like an and reader can build up the character like in their head. And I, for me, that's something that sticks. And I, for me, that's something that's really powerful. Um, but you know, I was also just reading a little bit about you. I love how you kind of describe yourself as a storyteller by passion and um, an analyst by profession. You know, this is not Gold Diggers, it's not your first book. You wrote The Polygamist, which was released in 2012 and Gold Diggers mm-hmm. released in 2018. Um, so I think there was just, we. I, I read the book and I just felt like I needed to have more of a conversation with you. And I think that's just currently reading the book as well. Um, okay. Just to kind of really delve into you as a person, who is this person who writes these characters? Who is this person who has written such a story? Um, detailing, first of all, the you. It's, it's set in 2008 where there was quite... Um, economic turmoil in Zimbabwe and as a result there was such a surge of um, economic migration into neighboring South Africa. Um, People who traveled illegally and how they have kind of set up their lives in the city of gold as it's so called. But it also gives us a running commentary on social issues that are quite prevalent in in Zimbabwe. Um, And I found that quite interesting that whole mix because when you're reading your book there is such a feeling of nostalgia, you get that. And then there's so many triggers, you know, you read something and it shocks you. There's times when I listen to it on Audible and um, it's times I'll be going out for a walk and I'll stop in my tracks and I'll be like, oh my goodness, like how has this actually happened? Mm-hmm. But, you know, and I loved how you set the scene in that it's just one, it's a quantum, it's a, a body of people traveling into South Africa and how they're, the interpersonal relationships that uh, they have in South Africa, the turmoil that they have experienced and the turmoil that they continue to experience because in a way it's like sometimes you, sometimes, I don't know, it's better the devil that you know because you never really know what lies ahead. But can you tell us a little bit more about what inspired you to write this book? Like what was, what was your thought process and why did you particularly pick 2008 as um as a, as a time frame to, to talk about the, the, the troubles or the challenges that um, Zimbabweans faced. Okay, so I'll start with 2008. Why 2008? Because that's when I left Zimbabwe. So for me, it was a nice starting point in terms of, because that was 
you know, there've been lots of periods of migration from, from Zimbabwe to, you know, to other places, but, and 2008 was one of those significant ones. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is not to say people didn't leave before they did, but 2008, yeah. I think was like the most significant side because it was like the, at the height, you know, of, you know, the demise of the Zimbabwean economy. Also, we thought, we thought we'd reach the bottom and then, yeah. and then you get 2020 and you realize <laughs> we're still not, <laughs> we're still not at the bottom. Yeah. So what inspired me to write the book was, um, I'd been living in Johannesburg for, when, so when I arrived here in 2008, like a few months after I arrived, the first xenophobic violence broke out in Alexandra. And at that time, I was living in a suburb called Lombardi. And you could actually hear the guns at night, you know, it was from where we stayed. And so that was like the first, first sort of encounter. I mean, look, I was far removed from it, but I could hear it. And then you could also, on the news, it was covered. So it was like the first big xenophobic outbreak. And then we had subsequent ones later as well. And I think at the time, it must have been around 2012, 2013. And people were talking on radio stations about it, calling in people saying, these people should just go back home. Mm. What are they doing here? They've got their own country. They should sort out the issues. Mm. And so I felt like, you know, I needed to explain why people were here, mm. you know, and mm. why some of them can go back and why it's not just you know, a simple thing. But, you know, some things you can't say you know, in a radio, on a radio show for like, you know, 30 seconds or, or even in a tweet. Mm -hmm. So I thought I need to write a book, mm -hmm. you know, at my own leisure. And then I can actually really, you know, spell it out yeah. as to why people are here. And so that's how the idea for the book came about. Mm -hmm. So it was in response to the, to the xenophobic violence, yeah. And it's interesting that, you know, so you, you, 2008 where um, all the, you know, there was a rise again in xenophobic attacks in South Africa. And I, I really like that you talk about how you wanted to detail the journey and the, the kind of why people actually moved away from the, the economic troubles um, to kind of make, to give the why basically as to why people are in South Africa and you know do you feel like things have kind of changed in the last few years in regards to xenophobia because you know it seems to kind of go in like stages where 2008 there was a spike and then I think there was another spike in 2015 and the numbers do seem to be rising in 2019 do you think things are is there a lot? Is there better? Is there better understanding of um, that as Africans that people are coming to South Africa for for refuge, and it's not just there, not there just to take people's jobs, to take people's women, which is um, um, again something that you mentioned in the books that um, you know there there is that kind of ongoing commentary of um, you know these people or foreigners are here just to take our jobs, to take our to take our women. Do you feel like thing, there's thing, things are changing or do you feel like things will change in the future? No, I don't think things are changing. If anything, I think they're getting worse. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you, you're on Twitter, I'm sure you've seen that hashtag Zimbabweans must fall. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the xenophobic sentiment is, is now increasing. Mm -hmm. And for me, I think there's a strong correlation between the performance of the economy and xenophobia. So each time, 
the economy is not performing, you will have a huge backlash. Mm. And you can you can see it from 2008 as well. That was like at the height of the global recession, but it was also economy wasn't performing. Mm. So it's the same thing. So, you know, and it's the same thing now. COVID, the economy is not performing. So yeah. people will lash out and they'll lash out, you know, the foreigners first. Mm. And yeah, so I, I don't think it's, you know, improving. I think we've tried to make people aware. I mean, a lot of people who've read the book have said to me, oh, I wasn't aware this is the reason. Um, thank yeah. you for enlightening us. Yeah. Maybe this book should be taught in school so people understand why. Yeah, you know, so, so there is that realization. But there are people who do interact with other people from African countries and yeah, they tend to be more sympathetic as well. Yeah, of course. Um, one of the other things that I kind of felt came out across quite strongly for me um, was human traffic trafficking through child prostitution or how many children who are trafficked end up in things like child prostitution. And the story of Kukuletu uh, kind of really, it really touched me. Um, and it brought me back to kind of thinking about how when we were in Zimbabwe, we were always kind of told when we're growing up, like, don't, don't get into strangers' cars when you don't play too far away from home. And we see that with Uko Kakukuletu in that she always, the way that you painted that picture that, you know, she was called once, she was there by the gate. She wouldn't play too far away from home. Um, and all these kind of protective mechanisms that Gogo put in place for her. Um, and then she is obviously, she's put into this quantum, she's on her own gets into South Africa and her parents are not there to pick her up. And subsequently she is then sold by um, Melusi and, and give more into, she's, she's sold into like child prostitution basically. Can I ask like what your thought process was and why did you feel like it was important for that to be highlighted? Because I have to be honest and say that I never really thought about child trafficking um, or, or child prostitution and human trafficking before, but you certainly, you gave it a voice and you brought it to such light for me. And it made me really open my eyes and think, oh my goodness, the number of times we have heard of people putting kids in buses or in combis, going to South Africa, going to other places. I know there's a lot more laws in place now to kind of protect children. Um, but why did you why did you feel like it was so important to kind of highlight it into in your book? Okay, it, it was important because like all the stories. Okay, even though the gold diggers is a fiction novel, mm. all the underlying stories are real. Mm. So the story of child trafficking is a very real one. And at some point, you know, the Home Affairs Minister Omalusi Gigaba introduced the unabridged birth certificate, mm. and it was because of that. You know, people were you know, trafficking kids. And unfortunately, you know, you know the story. Mm. A lot of Zimbabweans are here. Mm. They can't take time off to go and see their children. Yeah. Christmas holidays, most of them are working in one restaurant. It's 24-7. You don't get leave. Mm. So what, what do you do? You want to see your children. You want to spend time with your children. Yeah. You put them in a combi, Loma Laicha. He's your, your link to getting kids here. And these kids travel alone, unaccompanied. And yeah. anything can happen to them. My nephew, 
I'll use an example. He, he was traveling alone from Zim. He was dropped off in Petersburg, but his destination was Johannesburg. Luckily, he was found, but these things happen. So I wanted to highlight that, you know, although we shouldn't take it for granted, you know, that, okay, we understand why they're doing it, but there are inherent dangers as well mm. in, in that passage for the kids coming. Mm. And yeah. every day here, you hear about children that disappear. And because people have become so desensitized to it, you know, it's like ugh, another child, another sophisticated mm. if, if I put a name to the child, Ukukuleti, mm. you'll remember. Yeah. And Ukukuleti stayed with so many leaders. Even after they finished, they always think of Ukukuleti. And that was the, the point. You know, try to put a face to something mm. and then you'll be more empathetic about it, more vigilant. Mm. You know, that some of these things you just put in place are meant to protect us mm. because children do get violated. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And just sort of like picking up on the Kukuleta story, like, yeah, it's like uh, Koli said, I'm, I'm halfway through the book. And mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's, that touched me. And I, I sort of, so the image that you paint, like when Ukoko lives, um, you know, lives Ukukuleta in Mark's garage. I don't know, mm-hmm. that sort of stayed with me because, you know, Mark's garage was like, you know, I went to like primary school, Escodini and stuff. Mm-hmm. So like that was our root home. And I think mm-hmm. it, it really kind of showed like almost the desperation that people have when you send your child home. So when you send your child abroad, um, or to the UK or whatever, even at 15, at 16, like so many parents have had to, parents, grandparents have had to, you know, let go of their children, literally hoping for the best. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought you sort of painted that picture well, because we see like, you know, Ukoko was such a cornerstone figure for Ukulele. So I just thought, have you had any, um, like you say, those stories are true. Um, but, and I thought it was really good that she sort of like painted that voice. So have you had sort of any feedback from people sort of saying, oh, this, you know, this touched me, um, but maybe the stories didn't turn out like Kukukuletu, but, you know, like the dangers, as you said, uh, that you highlighted. No, they did. I mean, a lot of people had, you know, had to leave when they didn't want to leave. It was painful, that parting. So at that point and moment of, you know, realization, you know, that you, you're torn from everything that's familiar. Like Ukori was saying, the, the protectiveness of, of, of Zim, you always felt safe, mm-hmm. you know, but now you're thrown into this deep ocean. Yeah. So a lot of people can relate to that. Yeah. yeah. Being snatched away from, you know, the bosom of safety. Yeah. So in regards to you, about safety you're talking about safety and you highlighted in your book about how home is not really a safe place for many children and many women as well um how did you how do you get into a space to write about things like child abuse um sexual abuse and you know I, I thank first of all, I think thank you for actually giving all these things a voice because I think when we're coming from Zimbabwe where things are not really talked about. Growing up, I remember just one advert talking about um, sexual abuse, that uncle, it's Uncle John. That's the only thing that I remember. And you know, there is so much, um, there is, there's so many cases and it may not just be, um, they, they may not result in pregnancy, they may not result in someone being expelled from school, but there's so many incidents of uh, children, women being abused in homes, whether it's sexually or whether it's domestic violence or whatever it is. But how do you, so my first question is, how do you get into a space and write about these things? How do you look after yourself? Because I felt quite, I was traumatized reading 
reading some of the things that you wrote about. Um, but then I can then step away from that. But how do you keep in that space and paint such a picture that can touch me as a reader? And the second question is, with the incidents and you know the prevalence of sexual abuse in Zimbabwe, whether it's from children or from women, like how do you feel like women are being supported? Do you think that things have changed from 2008 up until now? Do you feel like there is a lot more, do people have a bit more of a voice to kind of talk about the abuse that they, they have suffered? Okay, so for me, when, when writing about abuse and any kind of, you know, traumatic experience, I sort of have to like immerse myself into it. And that itself is traumatic. So in a lot of times, it's like, acting a role going into a role basically mm -hmm. and you have to be that person you have to be in that situation and it is traumatic and some of those scenes that i wrote in the book i was actually crying when they, i wrote them so i often say when people cry i was also crying you know yeah. so i felt yeah. i also felt the pain mm -hmm. so you have to kind of get into it as well mm -hmm. as a writer and it's like getting into character and then after after you've taken it out then you can sort of, I can go back to being Sue again. Mm -hmm. okay. And I think, you know, the problem with Zim is we, we love to have this veneer of respectability. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, we're always keeping up appearances. So mm -hmm. nobody ever talks about those, those things. They're always shoved under the, the carpet. So people go around, no, Zim men are not violent. No, Zim men are this, you know, and it's something we don't talk about. Mm -hmm. And I think it's time we did start talking about it. And with with literature, you can start interrogating those things. Mm -hmm. So when Chennai's dad rapes Chennai, that whole thing was was twofold. Mm -hmm. We highlighting one the the, the abuse, mm -hmm. but um, Chennai's dad as well was supposed to be like an um, umgad. Was supposed to represent umgad. Right. And in a way, he raped the people of Zimbabwe. Right. And that's why right. they left. They were forced to leave. So it's like a twofold thing because, mm. you know, it, it was violent, you know, the, the way we were treated, you know, it was violent. And that's what forced people to also leave. It's just the same, the same situation where you're supposed to be safe in your own country as a mm. citizen. You should feel you have rights, you should feel protected, but they were abused. Mm. And so it's the same, the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Was, yeah. And, you know, the, it, as a result of that violence, the broken or dysfunction of families that is caused by migration is also highlighted in your books. Yeah. So even like to continue with Chennai and Chamu's story, for example, so they go to South Africa to their to their mother, and you know their mother doesn't really she feels that they're strangers, you know. And I'm thinking as well about Dumi and Christine who. Um, Dumi's story is also just, it takes its own, it has a life of its own. And, but you, I, then you see again the dysfunction of his family and how he's breakdown of, uh, of a relationship with Christine and his children. Um, you just, your, your book also highlights just how migration creates family dysfunction. And Nat is, has written about how, how they robbed us and how people moved away from, or how, like, you know, parents moved away from Zimbabwe in the hopes of kind of supporting their children. And then as a result, you have these Western Union babies, um, you know, it's just more of a transactional relationship. But 
something that we don't really get to know in the book, and, I, and I'm sure it's maybe intentional, is Chennai's story is not really, um, you don't really delve into it, her relationship with her mother. Obviously, we see that it's a little bit um, problematic initially when she's like looking for a job. Um, and then Chennai is obviously, again, she is raped by her employer, in, employer's um, husband and she leaves that job. But there is no dialogue to say that they have that relationship with her with her mom to kind of say, you know what, this is what has happened to me in the past and this is what has happened to me now. So you see the strain in, in relationships. I don't know, was that intentional to kind of say that um, it was a difficult relationship or that, you know, people continue to have difficult relationships the longer they are apart? Like, what were your thoughts on, on that? They had a difficult relationship in the sense that, you know, the mom left them when they were young mm. and they were basically, basically left to fend for themselves. And for a lot of, you know, people who've left home and are reconciled with their parents much later, you know, a relationship doesn't just get formed, you know. Mm. A lot of people, it was just, it's money being sent home, like, you know, you're Western Union babies. But there is no relationship. You just talk on the phone, but you really don't know each other. You mm. are strangers. Mm. And how do you become, how do you bridge that gap? Mm. And the way our culture is set up, you know, you know, there's already a distance. And if you don't try to cultivate a relationship, it's very, it's very hard. I mean, yeah. where do you start? You know, and I think I was just trying to show how difficult it was. Mm. You know, where do where do you start actually? Mm. The yeah. One, yeah, another thing that uh, came across to that touched me personally, um, had me triggered was uh, Christine. Like, um, so she, Christine, is Duny's wife. Um, eventually, she gets an opportunity to come to 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 UK. She does a nurse training, um, but there's a point where you describe this like she's clearly depressed. You know, you talk about how she doesn't want to get out of bed. She doesn't want to eat. She doesn't want to socialize. She, her mind is constantly at home with her children who she can't even be with because Dumi has, has one like, um, I guess, paternity, I don't know what do you call it. He's one visitation rights or whatever it is. So he has the, he has ownership of the kids and she doesn't have that. Um, she continues like, you know, you also describe about how she, She's working double shifts sometimes, you know, um, and she's just constantly seems to be just trying to make, make, to make a better way for, um, for her kids back or for her family back in Zimbabwe. And her, her mom or her friend's moms are, seem to be living quite lavishly as a result of the, the pound. And then, of course, 2008 hits, you've got that one-to-one -one, um, exchange rate. Why did you think, like, um, it was like depression, why didn't you talk about depression in, for somebody in South Africa, like Portia, for example? Why did you put Christine, um, her in, the, in London? Like why, why did you make that uh, relation that, you know what, people when they come to the Western countries, which is true, when they do come to the Western countries, there is a higher rate of depression amongst people who are here than in, so in Western countries than who, those back home. But I'm just curious as to why you didn't think about um, depression in South Africa, for example, um, not that it's not there, but it's more highlighted in with Christine. Okay, for me, I think I've, I've just seen it more in people overseas, mm -hmm. you know, or maybe they speak about it more. Um, and I think it's because of the distance mm -hmm. from home, yeah. you know, and the abject isolation and the long hours, 
yeah, as well. Yeah. I I mean I have friends in the in the UK, and I I visited them, and I think life in the UK is different. With you know, for professionals, it's better a better life than for someone who's doing shift work. So, you know, it it just depends as well what what kind how you land in UK as well. Mm-hmm. So how your life pans out. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, I also wanted to tell that story that a lot of a lot of people in Zim don't appreciate, you know, like they don't value Imad. Mm-hmm. You know, and someone works so hard for Ipam, you know, like and the way they spend that money, not mm-hmm. knowing what has gotten, you know, for, for a person to just earn that that pound. Yeah. And I think that also depresses people. And the demands, the never ending demands. So, yeah. you know, I just felt I needed to highlight, you know, that, that also the UK migration also was equally tenuous. Mm. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. So just kind of pick, piggybacking off that, I, I think that's actually accurate. Um, I think, like you say, the distance, the weather, um, I think the way we're socialized at home is we... Um, gravitate more to South African culture naturally because it's the music we hear. Uh, so, and and I, I was interested in the Swongila story so that we find that initially she sort of didn't disclose that she's Zimbabwean, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts. I mean, we've spoken about this before, how um, people from Bulayo and Debele speaking people, um, I'm just interested in your thoughts about how people from yeah from and speaking people integrate in south africa because we have that familiarity you know language um is familiar um but that feeling of um you know thinking you know okay this is naturally a place that i belong but then then actually finding that oh well actually no you know i am still a foreigner even though you know my history sort of says generations back we come from here. So I was just interested in, 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 in that, in, you know, what you, what your thoughts were when you were um, writing Swanile in that story. I think it's, it's always easier for, um, you know, in the village generally coming mm. this side to integrate. I mean, the names are the same. And that's why a lot of them were able to, you know, get um, IT books and mm. you become South African and mm. soon get another system. Mm. But Lako, there's also pressure, you know, because like you, you say, you you will never be, you can't acquire that South Africanness. You, you yeah. always have yeah. who's Zimbabwe in you. Mm-hmm. So then you're also leading a double life, mm-hmm. and I think there's that pressure too, pressure of being, you know, and unf- you found out, you you pretend, you know, you have to be pretending all the time, and I think that takes its toll on people. Yeah. So it's you know the thing is it's a thin line. You you. You, it's easier to get a job if you've got so you, you, you want to have those papers but mm. then it means you have to hide you know, parts of yourself mm. and it's a struggle for some people trying to balance that yeah. between the two and yeah. I guess it was Fongile, like she was trying to assimilate mm. into new worlds you know? she was just you know, trying to survive I guess and that's probably what it is for most people survival mm. yeah I think you see that, like, even, like, I think we've spoken about this in a few of our podcasts, like, I think being your, your whole self and illusion of inclusion, where you, you go into a space and you try to fit in and, you know, where people do not, do not accept you for who you are, like, everything is fine up until they see 
you know, you can maybe send, send in your, your CV and everything's fine up until they see your surname. So they look at your qualifications and look and say, oh, this person is suited. And then it's like, oh, the surname doesn't fit. Like, how do you say that? How do you say that name? And then they see you as a person and then you're like, oh, you know, you're a black person. So even as, as a black person in, amongst other black people, there's also people like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm um, from the Caribbean. I am mixed race. So, you know, so there, it's, I guess it's, you've highlighted that it's an ongoing struggle for people wherever they are. Um, just to kind of talk a little bit more about your characters, you know, like what was your favorite character to, to write in, um, in Gold Diggers? Ah, that's a hard question. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough question. Um, because I guess, you know, you, you, you resonate with each of the characters in a different way. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe let me say Portia. Mm-hmm. I like writing a character. Yeah. 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 Portia. Well, Portia had like um, a stroke of luck, didn't she? Just by that handbag where she gets um, all of a sudden, she assumes the identity of, of, uh, of a South African and she's able to get into a job, even though she's clean, like she's in the kitchen, I think. Um, they then find that she can type, so she's now typing, and you know she literally turns her her life around. I think you know she her story is quite remarkable in that she comes from uh, was it Plumtree? I, I hope I'm not confu- mis- confusing her with someone else. Um, and then she travels obviously with her son, and uh, she gets there. And she finds that her her husband has. Um, has, has, has another, another wife or another woman uh, who's there dominating, saying, oh, well, I am here now, so what must happen? And her husband, you know, she, she gets rejected, basically, because her husband is like, no, you're going back um, to Zimbabwe with my son because South Africa is not a place for, for families. But clearly, he's having a, he's familying with another woman. But that is something that is also quite um, prevalent in our society that, you know, you find that people have either small houses or they have, they go on to other places and they have other lives, you know, which do not necessarily include the life that was, that they were living back, um, back home. Like, do you feel like that is, that is true of our society today? Do you think that, um, is it an escape mechanism? Is it because people want to kind of have family, to have that belonging, or is it just an opportunity for 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 some men? I won't say all men, but for some men to 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 exercise patriarchy or and be men. Now, what do you think about that? You know, I think this whole story, Yara Porsche started a long time ago. Like, mm-hmm. I'll talk about my grandfather, for instance. He, he worked in the mines. You know what? You know, Wang mm-hmm. And he worked in the gold mines, yeah. So he would, he would leave home and be gone for like three years. And then he would come back. You know, I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't travel like back and forth. It wasn't that easy back then. He'd come back, he'd get my grandmother pregnant, would go back. Mm-hmm. Maybe two more years would pass, he'd, he'd come back. And so a lot of women were left. Ekaya. And it was not uncommon to hear with Ulumpas Rekoni. Those two mm. parallel worlds. And I, I don't think it was more of 
trying to exercise patriarchy. I mean, if someone's gone for two years, he's obviously going to find someone. Yeah, mm-hmm. he existed. I mean, let's be honest. And <laughs> the thing is, but I mean, we since then, I mean, migration is still there. But mm-hmm. now the thing is, women also have you know are able to now move with the men. It's mm-hmm. unlike before, mm-hmm. and a lot of women now don't want to be left behind. Mm-hmm. So she's by by force by fire. <laughs> so you you have women now following. So I mean, there are still women who who are who are at home, and the husband is in the UK. We still have those situations where you hear the husband is working in Australia. Mm-hmm. She's there. I mean, I have a friend, one of my close friends. He's based in Canada, and his wife is back in Zim, and she hasn't been able to to get the paperwork to cross. So you you still even people in our peers are still having those same struggles. Yeah. It's not by choice, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. So you have so you have these relationships where it's like long distance marriages as well. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, so I think yeah, it's it's just a, a systematic problem as well. More than just people just wanting to hold or have fun, you know. So yeah. yeah. I think there's a lot of aspects to it. Yeah. Because I, I think um, also on the flip side, we, so, we see Uswangile and Philibon, right? Because um, she knows that he has a family in Lipopo, he's got 10 kids, but he goes on holidays, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think because maybe we're reading it from Swangle's point of view, we kind of understand it. Okay, you know, they're keeping each other company. And, and, and I think those are some of the conversations that um, we don't have because, you know, but it's, it's, the, it's the reality. That's, that is what is happening. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, people have arrangements. Friends with benefits, whatever you want to call it. But yeah, I mean, people do it. And it's just, I think it's just to fulfill a need at that point in time. Yeah. Mm. And can I ask you like a question on how you develop your characters? Um, do you like already have an end? Like, do you know, okay, so you're writing about, um, for example, if you're writing about Portia or, or Lindani, do you already have um, their, like how they end up in mind? Or is that something that you develop as you, as you progress? Um, like how, how, tell us like what goes in your mind, like when you're writing, um, a book. So with the gold diggers, mm-hmm. um, I knew the story that I wanted to tell. Mm-hmm. And it was a story of people leaving home and coming to South Africa. Mm-hmm. And I knew there wasn't a single story, mm-hmm. you know, people's journeys are different that I wanted to capture you know, at least try and capture most of it, mm-hmm. of how people leave and how they end up here. So I knew the kind of the stories that I had to, you know, sort of tell. So I just, so it started from the story. Then I had to think, okay, who's going to tell that story? And right. so I then had to build these characters right. and say, okay, who should tell this? Who's best place to tell this story? Mm-hmm. And yada, 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 yada. Um, I think for, for a character like Ucham, I mean, mm-hmm. These characters modeled on something that actually happened. Um, a Mozambican national who was actually burnt to death. Yeah. Uh, and so he, he had to die. So even before his character was born, you know, that's what, that was his end. 
Right. You know, and then with the other characters, you know, you you just let them, you know, take the journey and you know, as go, you kind of think, okay, you let you let it evolve and see mm. how can it possibly end. And sometimes, you know, the character just gets a life of its own. Mm. Mm. That's how it goes. Yeah. But I mean, I think with this book, because there was already uh, an end game in terms of what I'm trying to get, the message I'm trying to convey. So, you know, your characters are kind of controlled. In right. Yeah. Like a nice story is, is tragic. It's supposed to be a yeah. tragedy. Yeah. And I read somewhere that you literally kind of walk, walk the streets of Hillborough and to kind of get accustomed to the place um so that you know because it's true that when you do write like i you can almost see yourself like in that space you know Did, uh, that that just to kind of go into zimbabwe like you describe the journey from Max garage to obviously um to the to the border you're t talking about all these places um you know the, the suburbs you know kumalo and all this and giving us a bit of a a, a running commentary as well about oh this place this it was named because of this. Is that kind of, did you have, did you also have in your mind like that journey like mapped out or is it some, is, is it a journey that you maybe made um, before and it was quite easy for you to be like, okay, when you pass this place, there's this place or did you physically have to kind of, when you're writing the book, look, go to, go from Max Garage and, um, you know, all the way to, to the border, for example? I, I did. Um... I think with my, my books, uh, I like to like really live it. So mm. I actually got on the bus <laughs> and went on that journey. Nice. And, nice. Yeah, I traveled and took, I was writing notes, you know, all the way of things I, you know, I saw. So it's, yeah, I'm very, uh, in terms of the research, I'm very active mm. about it. I mean, I would have loved to have been able to go through the wire as well, but it wasn't possible. You know, like <laughs> I got obviously couldn't cross illegally. Yeah. Um. So yeah. I I watched a lot of videos, YouTube. Um. I read about and I spoke to people's accounts and I tried to you know, sort of piece it together, um, in my head of what that that crossing could have been like. And then in the end, I think because a lot of it wasn't clear, that's why I I used Google to describe it because a child wouldn't right. be able to right. collect every everything. So. Yeah, so yeah, I, I I like to research things that so that you feel that you're also there. Mm. Just with that authenticity, yeah. What was it about Lindani? Because Lindani has featured in uh your in your debut your debut novel, The Polygonist. What was it about her that you made you wanted to kind of continue her story um into gold diggers, into the gold diggers? Thing with the thing with Ulindani, readers love her for whatever reason. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with me. So they, they were, they always like, what happened to Lindani? Like in the polygamous, it's like she's like the popular one. Mm. So I just kind of felt like, okay, let me bring her into this book, mm. you know. And even now, people are like, hey, please get Lindani out of jail or wherever she is. <laughs> so there's always this thing. <laughs> Lindani, she's such a a popular character for yeah, I don't understand it, but readers seem to love her. I think it's just I think it's just her her 
you know, there's something about her. She's the, she's the person who kind of um, is a mothering figure for Gugule to, you know, then she, she seems to have like, she is loved by Melusi. Again, you know, that whole, that's something that we, we don't see like a lot of in, in the book in that, that whole affection between two people. And I feel like that their love is so pure. And then of course, give more comes and messes everything up and give more. If I could have my way with Gilmore, like I'm telling you. Um, but he literally, he messes things up for her because I feel like if it hadn't, and I, my feelings, if it hadn't been for him, like I just wonder, like, would, could it have been like that um, a fairy tale ending of, you know, these two people, they just deeply care about each other, they love each other, they'll be together, maybe they'll adopt Gugule too, you don't know. But Gilmore came in and just messed things up. And you just see how her life then takes another turn and you know she she is she's dies in Malaysia doesn't she so we can't we can't there isn't even hope for her coming back in another book unfortunately the thing is she got the death sentence so it's not like they hang immediately so she may be able to come back who knows (laughs) 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 so she might come back Um, okay, so can we talk a little bit more about you as, as a person? I think Nat had a few questions. You say that, I read an interview, well, I saw an interview where you say that um, you're an investment analyst um, by day. So are you still, do you still have a nine to five or, you know, is writing your full-time gig? Okay, so the investment analyst part ended in May 2018. So almost two years ago, yeah. So so now I'm actually writing full time. Yeah. So yeah. Exciting. So so is there another is there another book that's in the works? So I've just finished a book. So it's coming out in October. It's called A Family Affair. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you you might have heard me tweet. I said one day I'm going to write a book about development. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that book. <laughs> okay, so can you give us a little taster? Like, just a little bit. Like, what is it about? What can we expect from that book? So, A Family Affair is about a family. The Mafus, they call it, yeah, the Mafu family. A family in Bulawa, the dad is a pastor. Uh-huh. Three daughters. Okay. And, yeah, so we take you through this journey with this family and this, they look picture perfect, mm. but behind the scenes, things start to unravel. Oh. So yeah. And is, is it just set in Zim or are we going to see them in different places as well? No, this, the book, that book is predominantly set in Zim. Okay. Uh, I mean, obviously, yeah, they move, you know, out other places but it's predominantly Bulawayo from 2000 the book start opens in 2001 uh-huh. but it's a, it's a Bulawayo story so you can expect a lot of nostalgia okay. when you read it. Yeah. I love that I, I can't wait um and just a uh, just a question about your writing so like when did you start um and when did you sort of decide that you know what writing is a route that I want to pursue so uh, I've always said, I mean, I think from as young as eight, you know, I was really writing stories. 
cutting pictures out of magazines, writing stories around them. So I think that seed was planted a long time ago. But I think it just wasn't, you know, encouraged. You know, our, our parents are like, yeah. You say you yeah. want to be a writer, so they'll be like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> profession, you know how our parents are like. Yeah. And so, so I, it's not something I pursued at university. So this is how I ended up studying finance, you know. And there was actually no, no motivation for me to study finance. It, was just, it just sounded, you know, interesting and unfamiliar for me. So I was like, okay, cool, I'll do this. Yeah. And yeah, and so for me, the finance part was the profession, the thing that paid the bills. But, and I think I'm one of those people, like, you know, if I, I put, if I put my mind to something, I'll do it. Mm. And I guess I did it fairly well. But the love, my real love was in the writing. Yeah. And I always wrote, you know, behind the scenes. So, you know, I never stopped doing that. So I think then the polygamous was published. Yeah. In 2012. And then, of course, you see, the thing is, when you're writing and, and working full-time, it's, you really don't have time for writing. Mm. Because, you know, it's also a full-time job in itself. Mm. And then you have this break where you, I don't write anything for, like, you know, a few years. There's quiet. I had a child in between. And so there's silence. Yeah. So, you know, when I turned, you know, it was like, when I turned 40, that's when the gold diggers came out. You start to make, ask yourself those you know, questions. Where to from here? Okay, what, what do you really want to do? And I got retrenched, actually, just a month before my birthday. Right. And I, I look at it now, and I think it's a blessing in disguise. Because, you know, because I think God was telling me, you know, this, you need to, you know, stop now. Yeah. And yeah. because after that, I, I started to write. And I wrote. And I've been writing. And I think, you know, when they say, like, invest in your passion, it will pay off sometime. I think it's true. It, it doesn't happen automatically. But I say to myself, I'm here two years later. I'm still alive. You know, I can still pay the bills and there's the roof over my head. So... Obviously, it's not as cushy as it used to be. You know, it's different when now you work for yourself. But I've I found a way to make it work. And, yeah, I just need to, to carry on because, you know, I get a lot of satisfaction from the writing. And, yeah, and other opportunities, writing-related opportunities have opened up. So I think when you pursue your passion, it, it really does. The money will come later. Yeah. I, I believe that now. Yeah. And so... Just a question about, so you, you know, you're passionate about writing from a young age, but I'm interested in how was your experience writing in Zim? You know, obviously doing that whilst you were studying and working. Um, do you, do you feel like the, 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 the door opened because you were in South Africa? Do you think you would have had a different experience if you had been in Zim in terms of being able to write and publish? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I tried to get published when I was in Zim and doors closed in my face. So I, you know, I think moving here just, you know, opened other doors. So, yeah. So, yeah, I think, yeah, for me, that actually was a, also a blessing in disguise because I don't think my writing would have taken off 
because it's not like I didn't write when I was there. I did. And actually, the book, A Family Affair, is a book I started writing in my 20s. Oh, really? And I tried to get it published. Yeah. And it, it in Zim, and it got rejected. And so, <laughs> um, but I, you know, I never like threw the manuscript away. You know, mm. I just reworked it again mm. later. And yeah, so, and that's the one that's getting published. So, yeah, so I think it's, you know, it, it worked out in the end. I mean, we're here now. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's really good. And what advice would you have for a young writer? Um, say someone like a young girl who's in Bulaya right now um, listening or watching this and is really passionate about writing um, and maybe is experiencing the same things that you talked about, about, you know, just having the doors shut. Um, you know, what advice would you, would you give to them in terms of a way forward right now? You know, I would say you just keep writing. Um, don't stop. You, you know, you, you, writing is one of those things you get better the more you do it mm. and the more time you devote to it. Uh, we live in a different age now in terms of internet access. You could be sitting in Bulawayo, but you can access someone in the UK. You know, publishers are available. You can, you know, they're available online. They always have open calls for submissions. So I think you, you just have to be intentional now. If mm. you, if you really, want to be published you can actually get published you know follow people the publishers follow those forums if they competitions submit get you know just you have to proactively pursue it mm. so you get your name out there mm. i mean with the polygamist i couldn't get a publisher for it that's why i self-published it mm. but that in itself opened doors for me because when i then looked for the publisher for the gold diggers people now knew my name you know, the polygamist sells very well. So I'd already, you know, my name was now out there, so it was easier. So I think, if, you know, if you're really, you know, passionate about something, you just have to, to go for it. And you need to be, you need to persevere. It's, it's, a, it's a tough, writing's tough. Mm. I mean, rejections can, it's like being rejected by a lover, you know, but you still have to get up and say, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> and believe in yourself. <laughs> Yeah, so it's tough. It's a tough career choice, I think. And what books are you reading at the moment, or which authors are you excited about that are sort of like new and up and coming? The book um, I'm going to start reading is All Drift by Naomi. Yeah, yeah, Naomi Sopel. Yeah, I think I got that name right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I got that book recently. And I got some other books recently as well on my birthday. There's Um Um Mike is it Mukiwa by Peter Godwin, I think. Uh House of Stone by Christina Lamb. And another nonfiction book about yeah, Rhodesia, The Last Outpost. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of trying to read more sort of books that speak to that Rhodesian era. Because I think my yeah. next book, you know, is, is actually going to be set right. in that pre-Rhodesia era up, you know, up until now. So I'm kind of sort of like, you know, starting to, to do the research for that. So, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm also reading what has been written, you know, already. I'm trying to see, you know, where oh. you know, I can fit in. 
Yeah. Do you ever, do you ever get like, you know, I, I, you obviously like I'm looking forward to family affair already. It sounds going, sounds like it's exciting. And I'm looking forward to this one that you're doing research for now, like with uh, pre, pre, pre like Rhodesian times, but do you ever feel like some, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it, but any anxiety when it comes to like putting out other books, because you put out the polygamous, you self publish it well received gold diggers people love it so there's almost that expectation that you know um family affair is going to be super amazing like do you ever feel like oh my goodness am i not going to 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 do you ever like do you ever doubt yourself or how do you quite like quench those um thoughts that come into your head that tell you that maybe or you know what this is this might not be good enough or like or do you or, or maybe you don't have that at all you just know that this is a good book and it's going to be well received. Like, what is your? Do you have any anxiety when you're taking when you're putting new books up? I had a lot of anxiety with the second book, mm-hmm. you know, because I think there was so much expectation. Mm-hmm. With the, you know, after the polygamist, people thought it was such a, a brilliant book, mm-hmm. and I thought I could never do better than that, you know. And even now, you you often you get some people saying no, but the polygamist is better, you know. So, but <laughs> I'm I'm just happy because the gold diggers has done well in its yeah. in its own right, mm-hmm. so it it stands on its own. So I think that was the anxiety I had that you know I'll bomb with the second book. It's, I guess it's like producing an album. Mm-hmm. You know, you have your first album's a hit, and then you you're afraid the second one. But now on the third one, you know, I I I think I've I've found my mojo now. I'm more comfortable, so there's no anxiety anymore. So it's like I'm just now I'm writing. Just I don't have any any issues. I'm just like I'm doing this now. It's like <laughs> this is it. <laughs> yeah, this is it. Yeah. Um, and just wanted to say happy belated birthday, by the way. Yeah. We, we should have said that at the beginning. <laughs> no, thank you so much. It's, I have the whole year to be forty-two, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. but you know we're doing twenty twenty part two next year yeah. because. <laughs> So we're remaining the same ages next year. <laughs> yeah, we're reclaiming what COVID has taken from us. Yeah. Uh, what I wanted to say, Sue, is um, so thank you so much. Um, you know, t- uh, sharing about you know the book um, and just the themes from the book. Um, just sort of like turning turning slightly. Um, so social media, you know, you're probably one of the more um visible people on social media and i really like that you drive conversation um there's a a thread that you did which was about what is the one thing or what are the things that people over 40 regret which i mean i thought that was that was so interesting and yeah so i just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on so just on that topic um in terms of like you know you know, are you, are you living your best life? <laughs> um, you know, does it get better with age? Uh, you know, what can you share with us? I, I, I honestly do think it does. There's something about turning 40 that's liberating, mm-hmm. you know, um, in so many ways. And, yeah, it's a good age to be in. And you, you yeah, you look back and think, what was the whole fuss about you know <laughs> yeah yeah I'm, I'm happy in my in my 40s I, I honestly am 
and I think a lot of people have anxiety about getting older, but I feel like I've come into my skin. Like, yeah. you know, I, I now fit. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that to me is the most comfortable place to be. Yeah. I get you know? I get yeah. So, yeah. And everything just falls. It's like fallen into place. And so, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm happy. I'm, I'm doing what I love. Mm-hmm. I have, I have my son. Mm-hmm. You know? And I suppose people will be like, okay, and the man, what about a man? <laughs> I'm like, okay, maybe that will come. <laughs> if it doesn't come, that's also okay. Um, I'm not so stressed about, you know, having a man. And, you know, I, I honestly also think it's a time thing. Mm-hmm. I honestly don't have time for a relationship. I mean, writing takes up a lot of my time. I won't lie. And I, I don't know where I'd fit in the time to cater for a man. Because having a child was also, um, it's time consuming. Being a mom is also time consuming. You need, you need to give it time. I mean, I can't outsource someone to take care of my son for me. So I, I feel like I don't want to stretch myself too thin. And, you know, you know, if, and if, yeah, if the love hap- thing happened, it'll happen and it'll fall into place, however it happens. But I'm I'm not like actively out there looking, you know, for a man, you know. So yeah, that's that's basically me. So when you know when I if you see me on Twitter saying you know I'm single and and happy, I I really am. It's not like a a little front, you know. <laughs> yeah, I I I honestly don't have time. Like writing is is consuming, mm. and I think of how I used to write before I had a child. I mean, I could wake up in the morning and write until midnight. Sometimes I forget to eat. Wow. Because that's how consuming it can get. So, you know, at times, like, when you get into a story, you don't want to stop because you're thinking, the idea might go. So, and then, but I remember, I have to, now I have to stop, I have to stop, I have to cook, you know, <laughs> I have to make sure my son... Yeah, you know, so, that's what I'm saying, like, I kind of, and now with homeschooling, which complicates things, because before, he would go to school in the morning, and then I could write until, from morning to one, mm. and then I pick him up, but now, I have to juggle Microsoft Teams, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So my life is is very full in that sense. So yeah, but like you know, like I'm saying, I mean, I still don't have time to read enough, you know, and do my research. So there's a lot, there's a lot in my in my day. Yeah. Okay. So I wanted to 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 get your thoughts. So both you and Scully to sort of chime in. Um, I'm sure you guys saw this. I think Sue. I think you. I saw you commented on this. So, oh, Dr. Cindy. Um, I think she does her DM to TL um, uh, things where she posts. Um, you know, scenarios that people share with her and want to get people's opinion. So I'm going to read it out. And then Sue, I'd like to get um, your thoughts. So this is the um, message that Dr. Cindy received. So the person said, um, I have a question and would like to hear how, um, how people would handle the situation. So this is the scenario, a woman with two children, each with their own father, separated from both, Baby daddy number one is well off. Baby daddy number two is struggling financially and tries to make ends meet. Baby daddy number one sends money for shoes his child asked for or is just a gift costing 3,000 rands. Um, As a mother, 
as a mother, do you buy the 3,000 rand shoes for the child, as the father said, or do you buy cheaper ones for both children? As a man, so this is a question for men, as a man, are you okay if you send money for your child and the mother decides to use the money for both children, thus resulting in your child not getting what you had wanted for them? Uh, this scenario includes everything, expensive school, expensive phones, um, or just an expensive lifestyle for the one child. Um, yeah, how would you deal with this dynamic? I thought that was interesting. And Sue, I, I, I really enjoy your thoughts on these social issues. So I wanted to get, what, what do you think about that? I was very clear in my response. I would, I would split the money between mm -hmm. the two, you know, because the thing is you live with two kids. I, I can't cause divisions in my home because, you know, one child is getting and one child is not. I think, if you're a mom, you just have to be equitable, you know. Like I said to someone, so the other child can't eat pizza because the dad doesn't send pizza money. How does that work? And I've seen it in real life when people separate kids like that. One child, the other one at Whitestone. How does, you know, kids already, you cause dissension between them. So they're already wondering, but why? Why, why is one going there and why? Mm. and uh, the different opportunities you expose us. I just think it's not right. Yeah. And I and look, I understand where the men are coming from saying, hey, but <laughs> yeah. but the thing is, if you if if you came into the picture and saw that, you know, I'm someone with a child, um, I mean, at some point you need to, to realize that you, you can't just say, okay, you're going to look after your own child. You have to look after both of them. Yeah. It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a package, a combo. Mm -hmm. You can't really take what you want. It doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, for me, I would say it has to be fair. I, I, I can't. And if I can match the dad and say, okay, fine, white stone for white stone, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But yeah. if I can't, yeah. I'm just going to do what's fair. Mm -hmm. It's easy if I can match him. He buys the one the cell phone, then I buy the other one. But what if you can't match? Mm -hmm. You know, what if your finance situation is different? You mm. just have to do what's fair because you also want harmony in your home. He doesn't live there. He just sends money and he yeah. goes and lives where he is. So if you have primary custody, I think you have a responsibility to be fair to both kids. I, That's how I would I, deal with it. Yeah. 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 I agree with that for sure. Yeah. I agree with that. Cause I was also thinking like, I don't know what you guys think about this. Cause I was like, well, maybe the father should, if he wants to buy the expensive stuff, he should buy it. And you know, but the money that he gives is for the mother's judgment. Yeah. You know, um, but, but yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a difficult situation. I have seen those situations as well um, where, and also sometimes it could be where the father um, doesn't necessarily expect the mother to split, but you know, he's w much wealthier and you know, when the other child goes there, they've got Xbox, PlayStation and everything. And yeah. But I, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. I actually used to see it with my neighbor had a similar situation. So her, her baby daddy, one, didn't support at all. Mm. And then two was active. You know, he's active in terms of coming to see the child, being there, buying stuff. And then I, the, the little one was, the other one was so miserable. And she used to come to my place a lot each time the other one would go. 
and I saw how it hurt her. Mm. So for me, you know, it's it's damaging psychologically. Yeah. Because you start to think, where is my father? Yeah. Why doesn't yeah. he do these things for me? You know, can you imagine a little child trying to deal with those kind of things? Yeah. The way we are, we don't take kids to psychologists. No. Basically. Yeah. And you grow up with the damage. So, yeah, I think as a mother, you have to try your, your level best just to level the ground. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree with that. Like, it's just, it's, it's too traumatic. Life is traumatic as it is. And then having to juggle family relations is never easy. Um, but yeah, so from you, we're definitely looking forward to Family Affair in October 2020, I was about to say 2010, geez. this year, October 2020, so something to look forward to. Your book, Gold Diggers, is out, it's available on Amazon, it's on Audible. Can we talk a little bit about Audible, by the way? Do you, as, a, as, a, as an author, do you get to, do you have any say about who reads your, your book? No, um, I don't know why you didn't like the girl who was reading. No, I like her. I, 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 I was very excited to be honest when I heard that. Oh, Malika, she's got a and they really her name as well. Yeah, Malika who? Jovo. Jovo. I was like, yes, but then it just comes to some pronunciations and it's just like. Basically, Sue was saying for the next one, can Koli and I do your audible? <laughs> Go for it. I mean, I don't even know. I mean, Audible's are not even that popular, though, to be honest with you. I think it was something they wanted to try out. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, in terms of sales, it's a very, very slow. I don't know if people just don't like them. It's a slow sort of market. People still prefer to, to, have to buy that. Book. Yeah. yeah. Then as opposed to listening to it. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. It's interesting. I to, yeah, I have to say, like, I... I read, I would listen to it only because of commuting and stuff. I would listen to it and then I will buy it. So I, I have already purchased, uh, so I, I bought it on Audible. Then I've got, I'm getting the physical copy as well. Um, and most likely then I will read it and scribe on it and then kind of write my thoughts in it as well. So um, I guess, you know, I, I find, I found Akosi interesting in that I was, I was really excited. I was like, oh yes. But then even when she was pronouncing some words like, Wundi, it was just, Slightly, slightly a bit off. I was like, hey, you know. Then Buduayo. Buduayo. I'm like, no. I was like, okay. But yeah, no. So we're really looking forward to that. Um, is there anything, any last words that you'd like to share with your, with your readers? Are you going to, are we, can we start a support group for those who read uh, gold, gold, uh, gold miners? Gold diggers. Gold diggers, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, people, <laughs> you can start a support group. People were saying to me, you, they were traumatized. Ah! And I was, I was equally traumatized, you know. You can so, come. And they, and they said to me, will you write a sequel? And I say no, you know, because I had to be in a dark place writing that book. So I don't want to go back there. You know, it's just like, uh, yeah. too much. Just, yeah. Yeah, because I, I had like, um, I like, I like, I like, um, a conversation, a conversation and they were like and they were oh, like oh you know the oh. characters were not really um like there's some characters that were not really given a, a complete ending stuff but i was like in essence we know we, we there's so much of there's so many people that we know where we don't really know like what happens whether they come to 
you know, wherever they go, diaspora, like you don't really know what happens to so-and-so. You don't know. It's just like people just disappear into thin air. Like family, I have family who I don't know where they, where they are. That yeah, was like, at some point, you know. So I think, you know, I don't think, I think for me personally, uh, Gold Diggers is, is complete. In my head, it's complete. complete. That, yeah, you, you're right when you say those, those incomplete endings that people speak about. It's true. You've heard that saying before. Yeah. Nobody knows what happened. Yeah. You don't know. Yeah. You'll never know. Yeah. So for me, yeah. we, we live with that. We don't have closure for some people. So that's why it was important to have those stories. Like with Tuli. We don't know what happened to her. Oh my God. Yeah. There are just, many people like Kutuli who mm. just disappeared. Mm. You don't know. Mm. Like Kumalume, for instance. Yeah. I mean, yeah. did anyone send word? You don't know. Not knowing. So yeah. it's, it's yeah. that kind of, of, of thing. To yeah. say. We just say some stories that never had a conclusion. Mm. Mm. Oh, no, listen, thank you for such a great book. Thank you for highlighting so many issues that, you know, we haven't really had a voice for. Um, I'm certainly like my copy, I'm sending it back home. So I'm like, you guys, you know, there's some things that um, we experience here in the diaspora that may not, I may not necessarily say, but this is the way that this is a reality for, for many people. So thank you. It's such a, it's a great book. We're looking forward to more. I'm getting the polygamist as well, so I can read more about Lindani. Um, but yeah, no, thank you very much. I don't know if you've got any last words for your, for your readers. No, thank you for reading me. I think that's the biggest compliment for any writer. And I hope you continue reading me. And yeah, so look out for A Family Affair later on this year. Thank you, ladies, for having me on your lovely podcast. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you.